0: Welcome in to a new edition of Stoppage Time. And this is actually a really brand new edition of Stoppage Time. If you had the opportunity to see Mike and I this afternoon on Twitch, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, unfortunately, the tape has burned. Uh, it's my fault. The producer, um, you know, forgot to hit record. And the way we're set up, we're not backing up our recordings on Twitch. If you're there on Twitch, you see it on Twitch. Otherwise, you get me remaking an edition of Stoppage Time solo after the fact to uh, satisfy everybody else. Um, This is what happens when you're trying to produce and talk at the same time and you miss that button click that is necessary. But Um, I'll try to encapsulate a little bit of what Mike and I talked about today and add a a few more things as as I've been able to think about it. I I do want to get into three different things. Um, It is the international break, so there's not a game to talk about coming up for Atlanta United. But I do want to look a little bit at Montreal and look at what this team could shape up like and literally shape up like in the final six matches of the season. I want to talk about the Eastern Conference and where the playoff picture stands right now and what's upcoming, I think, for the other teams in the conference because it's very easy to look at two losses in the last three on the road for Atlanta and and freak out a little bit. But the other teams in the conference have some tough games coming up too, and they play each other a lot. There's a lot of six-point matchups uh, where both teams won't come out of it with three points. So you could have some big swings In the table because teams play one another. There's very few cross-conference games left in MLS and that's going to have an impact on how I think volatile the, the conference standings are. And I want to get into the U.S. men's national team a little bit to wrap up because there's three big games in the upcoming week plus to talk about. And and we'll jump into that as well. If you guys have questions about anything that that comes up today, uh, don't hesitate. Reach out to me on Twitter. Tag me in the comments. Uh, If you're watching on Facebook, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Longshoe. And we'll get into it uh, next week because next week will be a little bit of a recap of the U.S. men's national team. Also, a look ahead to Atlanta and Toronto and updated news in the Atlanta United world. The biggest piece of Atlanta United news, uh, Mike Conti tweeted it yesterday when Darren Eels was on Dukes and Bell here on 92.9 The Game and said that the hamstring issue is not quite as bad as they thought it might be. It's day to day. Um, it's another day-to-day ailment for Joseph Martinez, but it is day-to-day, and I didn't notice the injury when it occurred, if it was really evident or not. I didn't think that there was an injury at halftime. Uh, Mike and I did kind of think maybe that he would be pulled out just managing you know, workload, uh, but it was said after the match by Gonzalo Pineda, and that was confirmed again by Darren Eels on Dukes and Bell. That there is a hamstring issue. It is a very low-grade hamstring issue. And hopefully he will be back for the first game back against Toronto. He is not part of the Venezuelan national team this week. He was not called in, I think, first due to the knee soreness that he's dealing with. And the hamstring definitely would have made him unable to go. Ronald Hernandez is part of the Venezuelan national team. We know Miles Robinson and George Bello are part of the U.S. men's national team. So let's go into Atlanta and Montreal just a little bit. Um, You know, big picture from the way that I kind of saw this match. Very even. I think the stats back that up. Uh, Atlanta lost control of the game in a couple minutes span and never was able to regain it. I I thought Montreal looked better once they had the lead and were able to sit back deeper and defend from a deeper position. The first half, Atlanta probably should have got a goal before halftime. They had some great opportunities. The run from Barco and the the, the brilliant dribbling and, and the chip off the bar would have been the goal of the season. Maybe maybe. It's definitely up there. One of the best goals that we've seen from an Atlanta United player in a match. It was that incredible of a run. I thought Barco was really good in this match. Again, wasn't able to get the goal there. Sosa had a great opportunity that was saved by James Pantamas. And going to halftime Joseph Martinez doesn't come out of the locker room to start the second half. Luis Araujo, Jake Mulraney start immediately combined to get Mulraney his first goal of the season. All is feeling good. Then it was wobbly, and it was wobbly for a short period of time, but a long enough period of time to lose the lead and end up losing the match. The first goal... Um, Atlanta could have stepped out and closed on Mihailovic and Torres a little bit sooner. They had more space than I think anybody would have liked. The through ball into Kyoto. uh, Kyoto got a step on Anton Walks, but not a huge amount. I thought Anton really recovered very, very well and forced Kyoto into a, a difficult spot. Kyoto takes a shot from really no angle and roofs it. It's an incredible goal. I don't think there's really much Anton Walks did here because, yeah, Kyoto got a step on him, got in behind, but Walks pushed him into an angle where, you know, that goal is not getting scored the overwhelming majority of the time. Really not much to complain about. I I think there were some Uh, comments made in Anton's direction on social media that I would say were unfair in his performance on the night. He felt the need to apologize publicly. I didn't feel like he needed to do that. Um, I hate that he did feel that way because I did not think he was at blame on either one of the goals. Uh, The second goal, Walks commits the foul that leads to the penalty, but Alan Franco had the giveaway. And it's a giveaway, building up out of the back. You're going to have these from time to time. Anton almost bailed the play out with an incredible effort to make a sliding kind of hook tackle with his left leg. He got to the ball, but I think from watching it on replay, and there wasn't anything to overturn the decision on the field, which was a penalty. I was a little hesitant in the call to agree that it was a 100% penalty because I I thought he did get the ball. And I I do think from watching the replays that he does – But I think he goes through, and there's contact on Kyoto's right leg as Anton is trying to hook his left leg back across. It's not a lot. It's enough. There's nothing to overturn the call on the field. That's what we want from VAR. We don't want re-refereeing. If there's a clear and obvious error, overturn it. There was not. The call on the field was a penalty. It's a penalty. Um, That's not on Anton, though, because he's trying to cover the ground. Really, the only other thing he could have done in that situation is just put pressure on Kyoto and try to take away Kyoto stepping to the right to make it a little easier for Brad Kazan to predict what Kyoto's going to do. But that's not an easy decision to make. And I think Anton nearly pulled off a great play there. I don't mind him going for that tackle. Again, it's not his mistake to begin with. And that's really it. I mean, from there, Montreal defended deep. They weren't parking the bus, but they defended with numbers behind the ball, as you should with a 2-1 lead. And they got the job done. Um, Atlanta did not have a fixed target up top. Uh, Ezekiel Barco truly played the nine like a false nine. And he got on the ball a lot and, and worked hard. And there was a lot of hard work. But they weren't able to find the breakthrough. And this leads to that question of what does Atlanta United do in these situations when Joseph Martinez is not available, has to come out of a match early? What can Atlanta do to still be dangerous in the attack? That was something Mike asked me today on on the show. It's not an easy answer because I I think you, you also have to keep in mind the overall balance of the team on the field. And this is something that has come up a lot since Gonzalo Pineda took over really we were talking about it with Rob Valentino as well and it's not an easy thing to answer because any move you make in terms of shape to increase balance or to increase some aspect of the team it corresponds to something that you're taking away from somewhere else or changing the balance of the team so it all does have to be a a holistic conversation I think Let's let's talk about what we know and what we've seen. We've seen Atlanta United look its most comfortable because they've played it the most since the coaching change, since the beginning of August, where they've won eight games, with three center backs. Anton Walks, Alan Franco, Miles Robinson most often, but also George Campbell has mixed in for all of them at different points. George Bello and Brooks Lennon as the wing backs, that five is pretty consistent. Santiago Sosa as the holding midfielder, consistent. The rest of it has not been. Um, We've seen Sosa by himself with a a stack of three behind one with Joseph Martinez up top. Barco, Moreno, Araujo behind him. We've seen a a situation where, uh, in that case, Moreno against Miami played as more of a holding midfielder. I think at least that was the idea. And Gonzalo Pineda talked about it after the match. Maybe he was putting... Moreno in an unfair situation, something that he's just not as comfortable doing. He can put in the work to track back and defend, but to sit from a deeper position, that's not natural to Moreno. That is more natural for Mateo Sosetu and for Amar Setic and for Franco Ibarra, who made his return, and Montreal, I think, for Mo Adams as well. So the variant that we have seen to the three center backs, two wing backs setup has been two holding midfielders with Sosa and Hosetsu has been the most common. Sadich has been unavailable. Ibarra is back now and gives you a different kind of personality there. Hosetsu, calmer on the ball, better in possession. Ibarra, better at winning the ball back, very scrappy, very aggressive, raises the energy level up in the midfield, gives it a different personality. But Again, when you start working through the numbers, again, every move there is a, a, a counter move. So three center backs, two wing backs. That's five. Two holding midfielders. That's seven. That doesn't leave four spots. That leaves three spots. With Moreno, Barco, Araujo, and Joseph available. That means one of them is sitting. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Having a fresh, dangerous attacker off the bench especially when you start looking at six games in a little over three weeks, not a bad spot to be in. Not a bad spot at all to be in. can be very dangerous to opposition, defenses especially. But that is a possibility. Now, if Joseph is not available, then what? That leaves you with three, and this is what we saw against Orlando with Barco Araujo and Moreno as a front three that – was functioned very differently. You know, we saw this against Philadelphia as well. Did you know? Is somebody going to sit? Going to drop um, as a false nine? Is somebody going to play a nine? Is it just very fluid with a, a line of three up top, kind of rotating between who's in the middle, who's on the left, who's on the right? It can be tough again. Balance becomes an issue with something that is that free and that kind of you know limitless. Does this team function better with a static or at least a fixed point in the attack? Maybe is the better way to put it. I think it does. I think the arguments for that's not necessary is, frankly, Joseph plays the nine a lot like a false nine these days. And really, since 2019, where he's dropping into the midfield, average position on the field from the match in Montreal. Barco was further up the field than Joseph, and Barco, when he played up top in the second half, he was dropping even deeper than Joseph into the buildup, really playing as a false nine. Joseph drops off into the midfield and is trying to time his runs to get into the 18 to arrive when a pass or a cross is coming, and that's been a little inconsistent this year. So to not have a fixed point in the attack is something Atlanta's been playing with kind of, even with Joseph Martinez. But I think we saw it in the second half against Montreal, against a team that's going to sit deeper in that situation. If they're not biting on the false nine element or the drifting element, trying to pull those center backs out of position, make them come chase you, if they're not biting on that, when you are able to, to beat defenders wide, which is something Atlanta was able to do a lot in Montreal, and put in crosses or get your head up and try to pick out passes... If there's not anyone to play in that area or not anyone who's a threat in that area, then it doesn't really work. And the wide play is completely nullified. And then you're left to 1v1s. You're left to combination play to try to break down a defense that is going to sit deep. That's difficult. It's doable. With talented players, it is doable. But it's difficult. So, no Joseph. Decided that the holding midfield is the way to go. You want to replace Joseph, and you're going to sit one of your attacking quartet uh, of very talented players in Araujo and Barco and Moreno. Joseph is unavailable. Is it Jackson Conway? Is it Kubo Torres? Who, as Mike told us on Stoppage Time today, uh, he was told that prior to going into the health and safety protocols, Kubo Tortoise was playing very, very well in training and looking very good and probably would have gotten that call, is my guess, in that situation. Well, wasn't available. He's available now, it appears, because he was in the video with Mikey Ambrose getting a cake smashed into his face on his birthday. Happy birthday, Mikey. So Kubo, and I know there's probably people throwing things right now, Kubo understands the position very, very well. He understands how to occupy defenders very, very well. That's going to create space for others, even if Kubo isn't finishing. Kubo's done everything I think he's been asked to do except put the ball in the back of the net. And I know, as a forward, that's the biggest, most important thing he's asked to do. That's been a problem for Kubo Torres. Can that change? Can he get hot here at the end of the season? He's a streaky goal scorer in his career. Gotta be perfect timing if it is. If he starts to get hot and can find the back of the net consistently, it gives you another weapon. It gives you a lot of different possibilities for moving things around. That's my th- my thoughts on the the possible formations and shapes. There is an element where you could see a three five two with two true forwards. Um, if Kubo is playing well, can Kubo and Joseph coexist? Can that work? I don't know. Um, could Araujo play up top off of Joseph or Kubo? Could Barco? We've seen Barco in that role before. It's possible. It's It really, to me, and maybe I'm, I'm getting into semantics a little bit here. When we talk about 3-4-3 and 3-5-2 and the way that Atlanta United would play it, it's not a huge difference because the second forward, unless it is Kubo and Joseph... The second forward is going to be more of a midfielder anyway. Because if it's Barco, if it's Araujo, if it's Moreno, they're going to be dropping. They're going to be running off of Joseph like they do now already. Like and nothing really changes if you want to call them a forward or not. So shape, Gonzalo Pineda has a lot of possibilities. I would assume that the rest of training between now and Toronto and, and probably a lot of thought that, that Gonzalo Pineda and his staff will be putting in is... What options does he have with this group of players to mix things up? Because there's going to be times with six games from October 16th to November 7th, Decision Day. Six games in that time frame. They come back and they play on the weekend. Then they play in the midweek. Then they have a weekend off. That's the only kind of off period they have the rest of the way. Then a midweek, a weekend, a midweek, and a weekend finish. anyone plays all 540 minutes in that time frame. I don't know how many players start all six games in that time frame. I think that's going to be a big ask. I, I, I definitely don't think Joseph Martinez will be part of that. I, I don't think he'll be able to start all six. I, I don't know how what the number is, but I would not expect it. So what's the option when he's not available? What's working the best? But then you've got to have that plan that is flexible because it might come up at a time where Ezequiel Barco is gassed or Marcelino Moreno has a knock or is unavailable. Luis Adaruju, um is just out of gas, like Brooks Lennon runs out of gas. And I know that's kind of taken a, a a big step there because he seems to be the energizer bunny, but you might need to give him a spell. Ronald Hernandez could be that guy. I think Jake Mulraney will become important in this time frame. I think all of those midfielders will be very important. Sosa, Jose, Chiu. Sadich, if you can get him back. Ibodra, now that he is back. Adams. I think Machop Chol becomes a little more important. I do think Jackson Conway and Kubo Torres have a role to play. George Campbell will obviously have a role to play. I think you're going to need 20 to 22 guys between here and the rest of the way to get this thing done, to get the points that are needed to get into the postseason. Let's get into that, because that was another big talking point that Mike and I had today on the show is – What is needed to get in to the playoffs? Uh, Mike was telling us that he was getting some comments after the loss in Montreal that they have to win five of those six. That would put them on 54 points. Um, Last time you had this kind of a format, and yeah, you had cross-conference play, but the same number of games and same number of teams getting into the postseason. That was 2019, and 44, Five points would have got you in at that point. 54 will get you into the playoffs. If you win five, you're in the playoffs. If you win five of six, you're probably fighting for second or third, depending on what other teams do. Um, You don't have to win five to get into the postseason. If you win your home games, that's three wins. That's nine points. That would take you to 48 Nobody with 48 points has missed out on the playoffs before in the current scoring format for MLS. This could be a weird year. It could. Um, it's very crowded. It's very bunched up. It's possible that you need more than 48. don't know if you need how mu- I don't think you need a whole lot more than 48. I could see this team going 3-2-1. and one. Three wins, two losses, one draw, and getting into the playoffs. That would take you to 49 points. That should be fine. That could even be pushing Atlanta United for probably fourth at that time. Right now, and there are games this weekend. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. New England running away with it, 65 points. They are very close to breaking the all-time record. They've got five games left. Nashville on 47. They've left the door open for second place with three straight draws, but they have a five-point cushion. Philadelphia has picked up 10 points out of the last 12. They're undefeated. They're on 42. Orlando, resurgence now. They've, they've Sorry, that's a bad joke. Uh, it was unintentional. Orlando with four points in the last two games. A draw. Came back to get that. A late, late winner. They're in fourth. They're on 42 points. D.C. United, three wins out of the last five, two losses. They're on 40. New York City, one win out of the last five, two draws, two losses. They're on 40. They haven't won in in four games. Montreal, three wins out of the last five. Now, they had lost two in a row before the win over Atlanta, but they're on 40 points. They're number seven right now. Atlanta, three wins out of the last five. Two losses out of the last three, but three wins out of the last five. They're on 39. Now there's a drop from there. Red Bulls have a game in hand. They're on 34. Columbus is on 34 with six games left. Miami is on 32 with seven games left. Miami did kind of get robbed in Portland. Uh, I think they at least should have gotten a point. I don't know how much of a difference that would have made in terms of the overall table, but Yeah, the foul that took away a goal from Carranza I thought was pretty weak. Miami's lost four in a row. Miami plays at Red Bulls on October 9th. That becomes almost an elimination game. If there's a winner there, they're still alive, especially if it's the Red Bulls because they have that game in hand. If Miami does too. But if there's a winner there, they're definitely alive. Red Bull's even more alive. If it's a draw, neither team is in a good position coming out of it, and whoever loses, especially if it's Miami, I think is out of it. Miami's got to go to Red Bull Arena there. Philadelphia on the ninth, go to Cincinnati. That is a winnable game. Cincinnati has been bad at home. They've lost five in a row. They're 4-15-8. Could be the first team in MLS history to finish at the very bottom of the table three years in a row. Never happened. Uh, it's been that bad. They have their five points to make up because Toronto all of a sudden is on a run. We'll talk about them in a minute. Philadelphia could get to 45 points with an expected win. They'll be favored um, going to Cincinnati. That's it for the Eastern Conference over the the international break. That's the only two games. Uh, there's two games out west. Seattle hosts Vancouver on the 9th, and Minnesota hosts Colorado on the 10th. All right, when we come back into play. Montreal hosts Philadelphia, Columbus hosts Miami, so Miami's got like basically a series of finals that they've got to go through now. Because if they beat the Red Bulls and they get the 35, then they're one point ahead of Columbus, and they're playing basically in an elimination game. Columbus has a few of those too, and Columbus is a team that I think can make up a lot of ground here because of what they have at home. Uh, Cincinnati hosts Orlando. Can they go on the road and get that? D.C. hosts Nashville on the 16th. That's a huge game when you look at where teams could end up finishing in the East. And we know Atlanta is in Toronto on the 16th, which will not be easy. Red Bulls on the 17th host New York City. Again, feels like they play every week now. And the Red Bulls have had New York City's number, who is very wobbly at the moment. So this table is going to take a bunch of twists and turns. A couple things to keep in mind so you don't completely lose your, your head. A lot of the teams that are ahead of Atlanta play each other in this remaining schedule. You just don't have many games against teams who are either eliminated, pretty much eliminated, or from the Western Conference. So you've got Montreal playing Philadelphia, for example. You'll have D.C. and I think NYC. You're going to have teams play one another and take points away from one another. It's just the nature of it. So it's not going to be easy to have a night where everybody that's ahead of Atlanta wins and stays ahead by the same margin if Atlanta wins because they're going to be playing one another. So don't lose your head in that. Six games, three at home. They get NYC at home, which, again, NYC is wobbling. They get Toronto at home. They get Miami at home. Those are all winnable games at home. On the road, at Toronto, winnable game, even with Toronto, Three wins and a draw in their last four. Even with that, Atlanta can go to Toronto and get a win. They need to. They haven't won at BMO Field. Um, if they don't. It's nothing. Nothing's over. But, yeah, it takes away margin of error. You get three points, increases that margin of error. It increases the likelihood of Atlanta getting a home playoff game as well. Also on the road, you go to Cincinnati on decision day. That. Absolutely, like we talked about, Cincinnati's poor at home. That's a winnable game. And then you go to Red Bulls, the Wednesday before decision day. Have to hope that Red Bulls are eliminated by that point. That would make that a whole lot easier to manage. Uh, Red Bull Arena has also been a difficult place for Atlanta to play. Atlanta doesn't have to go and win every game on the road. I think they have to win their home games. If they drop one, they have to win in Cincinnati. And I think they're going to need another point somewhere around there i think if you get to 49 you're completely good um i think if you're 47 you're gonna get in i i I had picked out the games i would predicted and i tried to be conservative in those predictions with a lot of draws to factor in i went through the remaining schedule a couple weeks ago and i had 46 as the magic number for number seven and i had montreal and orlando both finishing on 46 orlando's been better than I expected. D.C. has been better than I expected. Philadelphia has had that resurgence. A couple other teams, Atlanta is included, dropped some games that I thought they would win or at least get a point in. But I had 46 as that number. I'll go up to 47. But I think if you're ahead of 47, if you get to 48, if you win three of six, I think you're in the playoffs. Now, you want to be higher than that because you want to host a playoff game because it's single-game knockouts, and we know how that can go we'll talk more about that next week. We'll talk specifically about Atlanta and Toronto, and we'll dig into some of the details there. But before I go, as this remade stoppage time is is nearing a completion again, if you have questions, tweet at me at Longshoe. Uh Also, you can drop a uh, tag me in the comments here on Facebook and, and I'll get into it. If you're listening uh, as a podcast tweet at me, we'll, we'll get into it uh, on Twitter, but U.S. men's national team, three games, two at home, one on the road in this qualifying window. They're in a good place with five points. They can be in a better place after this window if they get my expectation of seven. That's winning your home games and getting a point on the road. That's kind of how you play these games uh, when you're a national team and you're trying to qualify for a World Cup. Jamaica is game number one. That's going to be on Thursday in Austin. Jamaica will not have Mikhail Antonio from West Ham. He is unavailable. Uh, They're also missing a few other players as well. Jamaica has recruited very heavily to try to bring in a stronger roster. But I don't think they have maybe strengthened the links of some of the recruits as well as they should. It's just difficult times to get around right now. And some players are kind of like, I don't have that drive to be there. I think the U.S. men's national team has that, and that's going to help them in this game. But. They played Jamaica in the quarterfinals of the Gold Cup. It was a game somewhat like the Canada World Cup qualifier that we saw last month. Physical, intense, uh, fast-paced, pretty direct. It's not an easy game for the U.S., but it's a very different one than they had against El Salvador and Honduras in the last window. It's going to be most like the Canada game. Um, it won't be easy. you know. Defensively, I think, the U.S. is going to have to be very good here. I think Miles Robinson will be a key to that. I do want to see who he is paired with. Uh, Is it Mark McKenzie, who they paired up in Honduras and did very well? Is it Chris Richards, who has been playing very well since his loan to Hoffenheim got finalized, and he is coming in in good form. I think the door is open for Richards to really be that guy. Um, Walker Zimmerman, for whatever reason, is, is a little bit further down the depth chart. He was a late addition when Tim Ream couldn't play. John Brooks is not available due to a back injury. So my guess is it's Richards. It could be McKenzie. I think both will get starts over these three games. I think Miles Robinson will probably get three starts. Not great for Atlanta United. Great for the U.S. men's national team. I think Miles becomes really important against Jamaica. Um, With the absences, and I think the two biggest ones are Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna, Brendan Aronson becomes huge here because I think Brendan Aronson is that combination of a lot of things that Greg Berhalter looks for. I think he is a player who can get into the final third and score goals. I think he's a player who can pick out a pass and create an opportunity for others. And he leads the line really well. His pressing is outstanding. He's in the Red Bull organization. He's at Salzburg in Austria. His pressing should be top-notch. It is. I think he can kind of be that example for the guys around him to push the line, to press, and to be difficult to break down. I think Aronson becomes really, really important in all three games. Uh, And I think he's ready for that kind of a a challenge. I think he can – you know, he's not going to be the focal point. I think – Weston McKinney, who Greg Berhalter said today, will be in the starting lineup against Jamaica. Obviously, he's going to be the focal point returning to the team. I think he'll get a lot of the attention. If Eunice Musa is available, he had an inconclusive COVID test. He's trained on the side, but they want to play him in the Jamaica match. They want to play him in these three games. Hopefully, the inconclusive test becomes a negative. Musa will get attention because of being in La Liga, being at Valencia. Aaronson will fly under the radar a little bit. I think that helps him. Uh, Ricardo Pepe will also get a lot of attention because Ricardo Pepe has been amazing for the U.S. men's national team. And I think he's the starter up top right now. So after the match in Austin against Jamaica, they go to Panama. Panama has been a very pleasant surprise in the first three games. I didn't expect them to get off the bottom of the table. I thought this was a weak Panamanian team. They're more competitive than we thought they would be. Um, Are they good enough to beat the U.S. at home? Yes, they are. I think the U.S. can get a point there, though, and they can get a win because this is a beatable team. The U.S. is a more talented team. It's just the challenge of going on the road. It's the challenge of game two. It's a quick turn, Sunday to, from Thursday. Those things will make it difficult. They, they make it harder for the better team to come out on top, but the U.S. has to play like the better team. If they go down and get three points in Panama, then it takes some pressure off for the U.S. as they host Costa Rica. Costa Rica could be feeling pressure the other way in this one because Costa Rica has a player who has already stepped away from the national team because of comments that the manager made in the last cycle, uh, basically through a Manfred Ugalde under the bus said he wasn't physical enough to deal with the upcoming challenge. So he was left out of the team. Uh, Ugalde said, don't call me back. I'm not coming. Uh, you blamed it all on me and I'm not going to put up with that. Uh, the Costa Rican team is older. um, Very experienced but older. They're asking Kaylor Navas to be Superman in goal, which he still can do. They're asking Brian Ruiz to turn back the clock, which he can do on occasion. And if Costa Rica doesn't start strong in this window, that could be a game where a, a manager is coaching for his job. And Costa Rica is playing for their World Cup lives in that game. That ratchets everything up. They could in that situation, make the game very tight, sit back and defend, try to play on the counter. That's typically how Costa Rica is their most dangerous. And the U.S. is going to be missing Gio Reyna in that game to to break open a team. That's where Aronson becomes really important. Pepe and maybe Tim Weah over the top with pace and with, with some speed and good runs off the ball will be very important, but they're going to need somebody to pick them out. I think Brendan Aronson becomes that player. So it all starts tomorrow, uh, broadcast at 7.30. 30 tomorrow uh, kickoff will be 7:45 in this one tomorrow night usa and jamaica then sunday down in panama and next wednesday back at home in columbus against costa rica next window mexico comes to cincinnati and that will be a huge game be great if the u.s is in a comfortable position after this window and i think they will be they should be Got to get the job done now. I think the expectations maybe are more realistic. You know, instead of nine points every window, now it's okay. Seven points. That's high enough. It's a big number. But it is a more realistic one here with two home games, one road game. Again, if you have any questions, we'll talk about them as we go. If you want to fire them into next week's show, uh, drop them into the comments. I will follow back up and check on them. You can tag me in there if you want. Also, you can tweet at me at Longshoe, and I'll get into things there. And if I need to write some things down to bring to the table for next week, we'll do that. Next week will be 2 o'clock. It'll be a match day for the U.S. Men's National Team ahead of the Costa Rica game. And we'll have plenty to talk about with two U.S. games, but we'll also have plenty to talk about as we look ahead to Atlanta's trip to Toronto. You'll have a good rest of the weekend. Hopefully enjoy all the international soccer that is on display for you. And we'll be back next week on Stoppage Time to talk a little footy with you. Have a good rest of the week.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy,